I also think that this is a commentary on polarization. It came out in 2017. It was serialized. Clearly, it was written starting in 2015 and 2016. And it's about the fracturing of a social contract of people no longer knowing what to believe, of people having these fundamental debates about reality. It It's like Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> Like easy going down, hard coming out. Unflinching take on brutality in law enforcement, mental health, and reckless endangerment with automobiles. Ooh, this sounds like it hits close to home. What do you mean, old chum? Wasn't that all about your in-laws visiting? Zing. <laughs> Dude, this week's comic is about Batman. Holy giant penny! <laughs> I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes who are not Jack's fucking khakis. This week, we are talking about Batman once again, but this time it's Batman White Knight, Sean Murphy's 2017 alternate universe miniseries that flips the status quo for Batman and asks some hard questions along the way. Like, why does Batman have the emotional capacity of a six-year-old? <laughs> In this book, the Joker cures himself of his psychosis and reverts to Jack Napier, upon which he begins a campaign to interrogate what the fuck the city of Gotham has been doing all these years, with law enforcement allowing a mass vigilante and some teenagers with military-grade equipment to take the law into their own hands. That would never happen. <sighs> what starts out as an Elseworlds-like plot becomes a not-so-subtle commentary on the limits of law enforcement. It's also got two Harley Quinns. Why does it have two Harley Quinns? Who knows? A Batgirl, a Nightwing, a Duke, Mr. Freeze, and a whole lot of fan service Batmobiles. <laughs> so joining us to talk about White Knight is my old friend and favorite digital nerd from the future, making his long overdue quarantine comics appearance, Brad Barons. Brad, welcome to Quarantine Comics. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So if you enjoy... All of the nonsense that Brad gets into with us tonight, you can check out his Brad Barron's Weekly Dispatch somewhere on the interwebs. But Brad, before we get into this book's book, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your pop culture sensibilities and all the weird fictional interests that you have that, I don't know, make us friends. Well, I, we don't have that time, but I, I've been reading comics. I learned to read on comics. I started when I was five years old. And in addition to being a lifelong reader and collector, I taught the first unit all about comic books when I was an academic teaching at UC Berkeley. Later, I was the lead comics analyst at DreamWorks, the movie studio. I just, I love the media. But as you know, Raman, I'm an omnidirectional nerd. I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars, science fiction. I'm working on a book about Shakespeare, which is the original pop culture phenomenon. And uh, professionally, I sort of straddle the intersection of storytelling, technology, innovation, and human behavior. And that's been realized in roles as an editor, as a marketer, as a researcher, and as a futurist. So I've been around. One of the topics we always talk about, or I devolve our friendly catch-up emails or phone calls into, is like, what the hell are you reading lately? So what's been some of the, the cooler shit you've been checking out? 
Well, in comics, I will actually say that the thing that I really have loved is the latest installment of the White Knight series, which is Batman Beyond the White Knight. This series is one one of my favorites of the last several years. And other than that, this is way outside of superhero comics, but a really remarkable comic graphic novel that I just adored was a Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe, which I, I don't know if you guys have talked about this on an episode yet, but it's, it's this- extreme- It's like you can see our spreadsheet. It's crazy. That's actually <laughs> a book we're going to be reading in a, in a week or so. Yeah. Well, it's magnificent. What it does is it takes you inside the mind of somebody who is not comfortable with cisgender performance. And so someone who is born biologically female, Uh, who then has a long journey to get to the point where that person is non-binary. And as a white guy, a middle-aged white guy, now, and I'm not entirely typical. I I don't watch sports. I'm Jewish. So there are, it's, it's, uh, I have some claim to, to being a minority, but by and large, I've been extraordinarily privileged in my life and works like genderqueer helped me to just see, oh gosh, that's, that's the water I've been swimming in. Wow. So that those are the things that come to mind of, that are of recent vintage that are just blowing me away. Yeah. It's something we talk about on this pod quite a bit. It's, it's a medium far beyond superheroes that just can like make so much more accessible. And I don't know what I found interesting about White Knight the first time I read it upon a very close friend's recommendation. Um, was that it tried to do something a little bit different. It comes back to a lot of the tropes, which we'll talk about. But I was pleasantly surprised to find out recently that there's multiple installments in Sean Murphy's White Knight verse that DC's letting him have a fun playground. But uh, I don't know. Let's let's jump right into the book. Ryan, I've been talking about this book for a while. <laughs> we said we weren't going to come back to Batman, but here we are again. <laughs> What'd you think of White Knight? It's like the Joker. We're always returning to Batman, huh? I just can't I... quit it. <laughs> So I was really intrigued by the concept, right? The, this flipping of the roles of Batman and the Joker. What's the same Joker actually like, even as he continues to be Batman's nemesis? I, I think I diverged from you guys, though, because I, I found the execution to be really, really frustrating. And huh. I actually, yeah, I really didn't like the book. I really wanted to. <laughs> Seven minutes I, in. Seven <laughs> I'm minutes in. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I felt the book undermined there's been just like a whole bunch of stuff lately, just ever since like the killing joke uh, that tries to analyze like the Batman Joker dynamic. And I'm just not interested in that anymore personally. But I also feel that what they did with the Joker, it's an interesting idea, but I felt that it, it took away a lot of his mystique and a lot of what made him interesting. This whole concept of him having these two separate personalities, the Jack Napier, the Joker one, it's sort of the, the, the Jekyll Hyde thing. I felt undermined the character a little bit because He's typically this agent of chaos and acknowledging that what Sean Murphy is trying to do is an Elseworlds style take on it. It's a less interesting take on the Joker. And with Batman, it's even worse because he basically throughout the book gets mad and hits things like that's his way of dealing with problems. And when I said earlier, oh, why does he have the emotional capacity of a six year old? I actually meant that because he is incredibly destructive. He has these bat tantrums throughout the, the series. 
And I was often asking, why are you acting this way? Like when he's talking to Harley, trying to reason with her, and she says, he, Jack, he's Jack, he's not the Joker anymore. He's a good guy now. And Batman gets upset and punches a chimney. And he's like, why? Why doesn't anyone understand that he's really bad? It's like, it, it, it was so odd to see a character like Batman do that, who has traditionally, he's in control he's this guy who well isn't gonna react like a 13 year old child well at least he's he just he grew he grew seven years over that comment ryan he was I six know, years right? old in the beginning i don't know the, I, well i don't have kids so i don't know the difference between a six-year-old or a 13 year old i think a 13 year old is a slightly bigger right well <laughs> pretty much and, and that whole puberty thing yeah yeah but i i i think to interrogate how I could get away with enjoying some of this, though, it's, <laughs> this is going to be a weird metaphor. It It's like Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> like easy going down, hard coming out. <laughs> Ouch. When when I first discovered Chipotle, I was I'm a bit of a Mexican food snob. And I was like, I'm not going to eat this crap. It's it's. It's not Mexican food. It's not Mexican food. And then I got my free burrito coupon or whatever, and I went in and I, I tried it. I was like, oh, this is good. It's not Mexican food. Like that, that's once I accepted that it wasn't this thing and it could be this other thing, and I just accepted it for what it was, then I really started to enjoy it. So even the minute I walked away from this isn't about Batman, this isn't about the Joker, yes, it, it does flip them. Jack Napier is a completely new character if that used to be the Joker. But and yes, he has his like psychotic breaks to go to fall back to the Joker. But this was really Jack's story. And to be fair, this isn't the Batman we know. This isn't the Grant Morrison or the Alan Moore Batman who can do everything better than anyone else. He is a child. He is a man child. And I I honestly enjoyed the stuff that didn't feature them. Uh, in or didn't feature like the classic Batman Joker dynamic when you bring Harley to the front and you give her a little bit more agency and at the end there is a reveal that she had more to do with it than we thought that's where I had more appreciation with the 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 questions of why wouldn't you do all of these other things if you've got this guy doing these things and honestly the social commentary on the police and the rich and the one percent that's where I found more value. It just happened to be wrapped up in a nice Batman bow. But I, I, don't, I, I don't know, Brad, what are your overall thoughts? Well, I, I think that one of the things that the book does is it strips down the Batman story and, and it pulls it out, not only of continuity with Batman in DC, but it pulls it out of the, the whole superhero ridden universe that is DC. So if you if you think about Justice League or the comic Justice League Unlimited, where there are just hundreds of maniacs in costumes all over the planet and all over the universe who are doing these crazy things. With this book, the rest of the world does not exist. We hear about a farm that Joker grew up on. There's one reference to the federal government declaring Gotham City in a state of emergency, but there's no Superman. There's no Plastic Man. There's no Justice League. There's no Metropolis. There's none of that. No, it, Gotham City is uh, at least apparently the only uh, city in the world that has superheroes and supervillains. And so part of what I think Ryan is responding to is if you're the, the big superhero and you're the only one in the world, 
and you're in Gotham City, you're going to be driven nuts. And without all of the other superheroes all saying that somehow it's normal to dress up like a giant rodent and, and beat up criminals, right? The, the nuttiness of it um, becomes apparent in a really, really interesting way. So that's one of the things I really liked about it. Uh, Roman, I agree with you. I think that Harley Quinn is actually the most interesting character in the book. I think that the women characters uh, really do quite well. Barbara Gordon as the sort of truth teller, even Renee yeah. Montoya. Oh, she's literally call, calling everyone out on the idiocracy. She does it from like the first scene she's in. I, I also think that this is a, a commentary on polarization uh, and on Trump. It was written, it came out in 2017. It was serialized. So clearly it was written starting in 2015 and 2016. And it's about... The, the fracturing of a social contract of people no longer knowing what to believe, of people having these fundamental debates about reality. Oh, my God, the Joker's a good guy? No, he can't possibly be a good guy. Oh, my God, Batman's a bad guy? No, wait a minute. And there's this topsy-turvy quality to the, the universe that's changing in front of the folks, the, the people inside of Gotham City, inside the comic, that I think is an oblique reference to the like, wait, wait, he's running? Really? Wait, wait, he won for so many people, including Trump, who famously was stunned to have won. For me, like I responded to that, but I've also seen it before in a Batman story. Like we saw it in what, The Dark Knight Rises. There was that thing with Bane rallying, creating this uncertainty in Gotham and rallying people around the lie that was Harvey Dent. The commentators who are talking about Batman's role in society. That features prominently in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. You have like this sequence of of talking heads. And even in that, you have this sort of like Joker quasi-redemption arc. It doesn't last very long. So I guess for me, I respect what they're trying to do, but it's it feels like tricks that I have seen before. And so that's why, another reason why I was left a little bit cold. So yeah, a lot of the things that I guess... I was hoping would be new, didn't feel that new. It felt like stuff that had been recycled from other Batman stories that I had read over the course of my Batman fandom, my Bat fandom. Well, it's to pick on both The Dark Knight Returns is like this far future thing. Chris Nolan's films, by the time you get to Bane, also in a, a semi near future dystopia is what happens with Gotham, right? But this... What was so interesting about this one, and yes, it's an alternate universe, but it was contemporary. It's this lived-in Batman world, and, and I guess the Dark Knight does that, and the Dark Knight Rises does that. But I say it was a comic book. It was a comic book. It was regular Gotham. Opens on Batman in the Batmobile chasing the Joker, but going a little too far with everything. And that's where it started to hit a little too close to home with police brutality frankly i didn't i didn't actually catch the trump stuff but i see it now for what it is brad what i caught was just the <laughs> the one percent and the police in, in a post george floyd world but uh, george floyd's murder wasn't anything new it was like this has been fucking happening this guy has been beating people up and going too far for far too long how the fuck do we allow it and I found it really interesting this upon the second reading, the chapter with Duke to be really interesting to the white male reporter 
talking to the black female reporter who's just trying to fit in, but she's also from Batgate, and some people call it Blackgate. I guess based off of how like little Dukes or Duke shows up, but it feels more like a hat tip to mm. the racial trauma of Gotham, which of course is a reflection of our own world. Art imitates life, as it were. It's a very perfunctory. It almost feels like a cameo when he shows up. He, it seems like he would have a bigger role than he actually does, right? He was like, I stand by the Joker and or Jack. Sorry, Jack Napier. He helps Jack Napier become a councilman. But after that, he sort of disappears. He, he's, he's involved in the action at the end, but in the same way that Bullock and Montoya, the two cops right. are. He's, sort he's, of just like a, a black, he's just driving a Batmobile. He, he's just driving a Batmobile. So it's sort of like Murphy seems to like flirt with going in a really interesting direction. I was actually curious what he would end up doing with Duke once he introduces this sort of racial component into Batman. But he doesn't really take it anywhere beyond allying Duke with Jack Napier. Well, it's a construct to show the 99%. Like it, it was a chapter or a scene to just illustrate what the frustration is with the status quo or the gatekeepers as they as they like to call the one percent yeah but i do think having the villain be neo joker who i guess is sort of like the rogue harley quinn really took a lot of wind out of this because suddenly all of your dramatic energy is devoted to dealing with this less interesting supervillain who has a plot that is basically the same as Mr. Freeze every time he shows up, which is, I'm going to freeze Gotham. They, we did that in Batman and Robin. So she's but now there's like, Nazis, Ryan. There's Nazis. There's Nazis who, I guess, but maybe he's not really a Nazi, it turns out. So you got to that. His father was a Nazi. Yeah, dad was a Nazi. Dad did some bad things. But the whole thing is like, the Waynes are allied with the Nazis, right? This whole Sort of like, and then, oh, actually, no, it was Mr. Freeze's dad was allied with a was a Nazi and Mr. Freeze disavowed him. And so it had nothing to do with anything other than to create some temporary. Uh, so worth noting, worth, worth, worth noting, because and to be fair, we are reviewing this book on its own merits. But being a completist, I know Brad's read a lot of it. There's yeah. a lot of really interesting one shots in this universe with Mr. Freeze and the Wayne Legacy, the sequel to White Knight. And they actually, upon the second reading, having read almost everything else in this broader universe, they're planting seeds of a lot more things. And I think when Murphy wrote this, he might not have known if he was going to get it picked up and renewed, but he was consciously planting a lot of interesting seeds that come out in the sequel, that come out in a lot of the one shots. So I, I guess what I'd say, the, the, the appreciation on the second reading is... He, there's a lot of world building going on, more than I realized the first time I read it. I, I also think that in addition to planting seeds for the future, one of the things that's really well done about Batman White Knight, and Ryan, I'm not trying to pee in your Cheerios here. I, I, I think I like the book. This, more, this I, podcast I is all about in Cheerios. I love pee in my Cheerios, and especially pee in my Honey Nut Cheerios. Wow, that's a little redundant, but okay. But so the thank you. The, the point I guess I was about to make is in addition to planting seeds for later installments, which I think is true, the other thing that this book does is it has that stacked experiences that I really enjoy, not just in comic books, but in, in all pop culture. And one right. of my st stacked experiences, it goes all the way back, frankly, it goes back to Shakespeare, but it goes in sort of the 20th century 
one of the first times I saw it was just all of those crazy references in the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons, where suddenly they'd be making reference to Edgar G. Robinson, which when you're a kid, make no sense. But then when you see them again later on, it amplifies the experience. And so there's so much about the way that White Knight deconstructs or actually better metaphor would be recombinants, like recombinant DNA. So you have all of these characters that in other ways and other versions, and they're all getting deployed in slightly different ways. So Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne have this really, really messed up relationship. You've got, you know, Mr. Freeze, who in this case is a crazy ally of Bruce Wayne's and their fathers work together. And that happens again and again. And, and so that part of it was really worked for me to be thinking about the Batman Joker dynamic. I think Ryan, it was you who referenced the killing joke with that incredible scene. The killing joke, I think is a little overrated, but I do think the opening scene where Batman's saying, we're going to kill each other. If we don't put a stop to this, we're going to wind up killing each other. And that was haunting me on the second read through White Knight because I kept on hearing it again and again. And even things as small as for the first 60 years of the character, the Joker did not have a name. He was just the Joker. He was only Jack Napier when Jack Nicholson started playing him in the first Tim Burton movie. So there's a constant web of references and allusions to the other versions of the story, which is part of the pleasure for me in White Knight. Well, that recombinant nature, it's Sean pulling all the things he liked best and playing with the action figures the way he wanted to do it, so to speak. Well, I appreciated those references. Actually, I like the Almost Got Him. Remember that? Do you ever see that Batman animated series Almost episode Dini, Almost Got one Him? Of the best episodes, yeah. Right. Remember the and he has that allusion to it where Joker says, well, "Every time we get together, we just talk about how we almost got him." And then Killer Croc says, <laughs> "I threw a rock at him." But it was, but it was a big rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing that they played with, and again, having read a lot of the other stuff in this universe, uh, the Robin stuff, like the, they don't talk about it too much, but part of the tension between Batman and the Joker is, and even in like the regular universe is how the Joker went too far in the things he did to Batman's families with Batgirl, obviously in the killing joke, but Robin, Jason Todd, but something Sean Murphy chooses to do is say, Jason Todd was the first Robin. And I don't know if that slipped the first time I read it, but it comes out in a lot of the other pieces. So to, He's planting seeds that slipped past me on the first reading, and it has significant consequences further down the line, even with the way Dick Grayson interacts, because in this book, Dick Grayson is the second Robin, not the first one. So. Yeah, I thought for a while it might have been Tim Drake, because he said that was a Robin before me, and I'm like, oh, that would that would make him Tim Drake. But yeah, they reverse the order. Jason Todd was number one, and then he goes missing, and then Dick Grayson takes over, and there he it is Dick Grayson, right? Yeah, yes. and, and, and to be clear, it's something they don't really tread upon too much until like the third installment of the White Knight series, which is currently coming out as we speak. So, and again, maybe it's too little too late, but it's it's just really interesting that there's all these seeds and tension. And for me, again, it, it's fair, not fair on a second reading, but I had so much more appreciation for the tension between the characters because I guess a lot of the explanation is paid out later, but these are fully realized people. And I think Sean Murphy really, there's almost probably a Wikipedia page that he's written for every one of these characters and what they've gone through before we even meet them. And I, I could sense that a lot more on the second reading. 
One of the things that I noticed on my second reading was the willingness to to use up characters, which you can't do when you're doing 12 issues a year across seven different Batman titles. But Yeah, you have um, to hit the reset button every time, right? Yeah, but like this one, like they killed Alfred and they did that in regular continuity a couple of years back in DC, but this happened first. And it was like, we, they killed Alfred and it's, or actually Alfred died sacrificing himself. Spoiler alert. But the thing that was so interesting about it was the impact that had the destabilizing impact that had, but that can't happen if you're trying to grind through so many episodes. And I think that's one of the things about the whole Black Label, which I think is the successor to Elseworlds. The Black Label experiment is they're just willing to to go into the characters and make them characters as opposed to having the characters basically be narrative functions. Serialized, right? So I I thought the other thing is, I, I thought that it took the evolution of the Harley Quinn character which is Harley Quinn's 30 years old this year, and took it and said, okay, there was the first real epoch of Harley Quinn, which is when she's wearing the clown costume, the red costume. The Paul, the Paul Dini one, right? Yeah. And, but then the character evolved into the, the Margot Robbie, you know, tattoo the hypersexualized, version. yeah. Well, I think that even the Paul Dini version for a seven years and above crew, which is what the animated series was about, was still pretty sexy. But, but what I really mean is they said, hey, there was this version of the character and then there's this later version of the character with Marco Robbie. Actually, in this version of the, the story, they're two different people. That, that Harleen Quinzel is the Harley Quinn. And then when she retires, this other woman, Marion Dews, I think her name is, takes over and the Joker doesn't even notice. That was like, the Joker's so crazy that he didn't even notice that the woman who is his partner is now a different woman. That I thought the combination of the external to the the story the, in the comic book history that we have these two different Harley Quinns, and then that becomes realized as two different humans in the story. That was cool. What did you guys think of that that decision? So initially, because I was confused from just a narrative standpoint, oh, there's two Harley Quinns, and then they they explain it later on. What did you think of that? I Again, the thing I liked was there always have been two Harley Quinns. There's the animated series Harley Quinn, and then there's the, well, we've got to make her more modern version. That Margaret, One is a, a sexy girl in a costume, and the other is like a hyper-sexualized, just like a very different. It's not, they're not the same character, the one that shows up in cinema and the one that was in the animated series. And the one that's been in the comics for the last 20 years or so is somewhere in between. So I, I think it's funny. I said at the top of this podcast that it wasn't Batman and I could let go from it, but it really was Sean Murphy reconstituting and playing with the toys the way he wanted to and using everything as a commentary, not just on society and police brutality and maybe Trump, but just all the things he wanted to do and all the things he wanted to take apart about the Batman mythos, the things that this is almost like either his love letter or his commentary to everything he thinks works or doesn't work about Batman. So I guess to to answer your question, Ryan, I enjoyed the fact that he decided to take a part. I really hope he wasn't just doing it so he could have this villain Neo Joker, because to your point, probably the weakest element was not necessarily the spurned Harley Quinn, but what they did with her as a villain in the overarching plot is the weakest link. But other than that, I enjoyed it because it was 
him commenting on everything he liked and didn't like about what's been going on with Batman for all these years. Yeah, it's one of those things, again, that I like in theory, but from a narrative standpoint, I just have a hard time buying, right? I know Joker's crazy, but he's not stupid. And for me, him not really recognizing that this wasn't Harley, it's it's a strange sort of psychosis and not the sort that we're used to. Like Joker is aware of what's going on on around him in fact he, i would say he's hyper aware of what's going on around him and you and you see that in the opening episode where he's baiting batman to put citizens at risk and so it didn't gel with me that he he does not recognize that this woman is not harley quinn and i understand how sean murphy is trying to portray jack napier i don't understand how he's trying to portray the Joker. Is he this criminal genius? Sometimes he is. Is he a jilted fanboy? Sometimes that's what he is. Is he a guy who just doesn't understand the reality around him? Well, we saw with the Harley Quinn situation, sometimes that's what he is. But I don't think those three different versions of Joker really add up. And I guess you could say, well, Joker is this chaotic character, but I don't buy that either because... Even when you're doing a, a character who's just pure chaos, there is some sort of baseline foundation that that the character is coming from. And I feel like his version of the Joker, he could not make a decision as to what he wanted the Joker to be. But but the thing with Joker and Harley Quinn, I, I almost wonder if it's a commentary on all of us. So maybe Joker noticed it and didn't mind and just went with it. And I think that was all of us with Harley Quinn in the last 30 years. Well, she's morphed and adapted and we just let it happen and i don't know so here the and issue then becomes like is this a commentary or is he trying to tell a good story because it seems like one's getting in the way of the other like mm. if he wants I, to tell i don't a think they're i don't think those are mutually exclusive and they're not yeah. but he's stepping on his own feet here he's juggling those two agendas they're not mutually exclusive but in this case i feel they are Ryan, you're an Aristotelian. So Aristotle in the Poetics said the characters have to be consistent, even if the singular feature of the character is that the character is inconsistent and the character has to be consistently inconsistent, with. So, which is, is part of what you're saying. I, I will say that the thing that worked for me was that the Joker was so obsessed with Batman, so and that that was the primary relationship in his mind, that he took Harley Quinn for granted and didn't notice even when she was replaced by a different person. And that Batman is the same way. And we've seen this in other versions of the story. Um, you know, one of my favorite versions of the Joker is the animated movie from the animated series, The Mask of the Phantasm, hmm. which also goes back into the early history of how Jack Napier became the Joker. And so their mutual obsession to the exclusion of all else is the main point. And although I concur that the Joker portrayal is a bit all over the place, the thing that I think is great about the comic is that the smartest person in the world of this story is definitely Harley Quinn. And we get how smart she is and how she's moving the chess pieces around the board by the end. <sighs> You know how we have those stories, the Batman takes on the entire Justice League. How does the Batman able to beat Superman? Well, he's powered by the writer's imagination, right? It's the writers who will Batman give Batman that sort of 
handicapped so such that he's able to overcome all of these and i feel like that's sort of what was happening with the harley quinn at the end when it was revealed she concocted all the drugs and was like it was one it was one of those things where again i just didn't buy it like i understand that she's smart i understand that but the level of coincidence that would need to happen for that plan to go into effect it happens because sean murphy wanted it to happen it's the writer's artifice coming in and dictating thing less the character who is doing it by her own will and her own intelligence i feel like i'm i feel like i'm shitting in everyone's bed i'm sorry about that (laughs) no you didn't like it the glorious thing about conversations like this is there's no right and wrong right (laughs) or brad Brad, this wouldn't be the first time that ryan has shit on a book that i really loved and i really wanted to reread the thing (laughs) it's been a while we've been in agreement for a while but i think it's it's good to go back to the old way of doing things (laughs) yeah our our worst episodes are when we both really liked it jean lun yang and junji ito (laughs) you know i used to i think i i think we have some dust-ups over that one I used to teach Batman The Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller, at UC Berkeley. And we would do entire lessons around tracking how the bat symbol, which starts in the traditional yellow oval and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually just encompasses the entire costume, just to give my students different ways of thinking about how meaning gets made and how the way that meaning gets made in the combination of words and pictures and how the words and the pictures are frequently inadequate. And and that book there's a similar isolation to it where it's a, even though it's all over the planet, there's an incredible intimacy to it. And like the dark Knight returns, there is an interiority to this, to white Knight. It's an odd title in some ways, because there's so little white in the book. The art is quite dark. It reminds me of the Christopher Nolan movies. It reminds me of the newer Batman movie in that it just feels like the hue button has been turned down. I'm sort of glancing at it. And other than the word boxes and the margins, I don't actually see a lot of white anywhere in the book. It's it's just quite dark. Something that's always frustrated me about Batman is the use of the symbol, right? So it's one thing for him to draw it on his chest. And they've explained in the past that in some iterations, he puts the yellow there to draw the gunfire, right? That. There's, so there's a practical effect, but it's him drawing bats on everything. And I, I take the umbrage with the X-Men when they put the X logo all over their costumes. Like there's a moment where he hands Gordon and the GTO all the keys and all the keychains have bat symbols on them. I was like, really? <laughs> Could you kind of? <laughs> so you don't confuse it with the Bentley? I as much as much as I like the bat symbol, I don't think that's what Batman's sitting around the cave doing, <laughs> like pulling out the vector file of the logo and putting it on everything. Maybe that's just me, though. That was straight out of the 60s series where even the <laughs> dance that he dances is the Batusi. And that that series, I learned to read with comic books, as I said earlier. And one of my earliest video memories is, is that the 1960s series, which I did not realize was a satire until I came back to it as an adult. And that was right. a grim, grim day. They're making fun of it the whole time. Oh, no, I felt betrayed. So... Ryan, I'm gonna I'm gonna force you into a corner. What was something you enjoyed about this book? The art was great. That, that, that is actually yeah. Yeah, the art's great. Sean Sean Murphy's a fantastic artist. So yeah, I, I do appreciate the ambition of the book. 
It's, it's actually one of those things, same sim- similar situation we had with The Killer, which we reviewed a few weeks back. It's a book that had a great deal of ambition. It was very inconsistent. Sometimes I feel the message that they were trying to communicate got in a way of actually telling a story. So I give Murphy props for, for that. It's, it's a big swing. And there are a lot of very timid superhero stories out there where they're just regurgitating the same old shit. So I do appreciate Sean Murphy trying to bring something new to this. What's interesting about that comment, regurgitation, Brad said recombinant earlier. It's, I think the thing, and it, it's it's weird. I I read this book upon a recommendation in the middle, or I, I feel like it's like as the Delta variant was scaling and more black people were, as always, were being killed in America. So to read it with the commentary first, it hit close to home the first time I read it. But upon revisiting the rest of the universe, just looking for more stuff to read in the last several months, I the second and third books of this series really go hard into Sean Murphy playing with all of his action figures in a good way, in the best of ways. The same way, almost like Brian Michael Bendis in Ultimate Spider-Man is like, okay, oh, well, now I got to so Yeah, the same way he's like, okay, now I got to do my clone saga. Now I've got to do my thing. And let's talk about Azrael. Let's talk about Batman Beyond. Let's talk about Mr. Freeze in this universe that I've constructed. So the the later books get so far away from the commentary, I think that was being told. There's a little bit of the gentrification arc that I guess continues, but it really is just Sean playing with the toys. And I'm all for it because it's it's. I, I think he's playing with the toys really well, not just with the art, but the the plot and, and even some of the character designs and developments that he's doing. Brad, what about you? Obviously, you and I are a little biased, but they're fans. So I guess I'll, I'll flip the question on you. What's something about this that you didn't like? Oh, uh, that's a great question. I felt like Jack Napier's manipulating all of the supervillains was a little weird. Like it, it, it meant that there was a hypocrisy at the heart of the story, which is, okay, the Joker goes sane. He's trying to be a good guy. He's looking for redemption. He's trying to help Gotham. But then at the same time, as we find out later on, he's been secretly manipulating all of the other villains. He's grinding Clayface up into snuff and using Clayface with the Mad Hatter to control everybody. And so this is sort of to Ryan's point, which is there's a split screen quality to this, which is, wait, he's trying to do good stuff, but he's using bad stuff in order to do it. And that was a little weird. Yeah, it's funny. All the complexity of the plot just to accomplish something pretty simple. And he, he Jack makes a comment on it when he admits that he did it. It's like, well, yeah, I had to do some bad to do some good. Isn't that what you do, Batman? That, that was probably the only redeeming quality of all the machinations that he was doing. Because for all the crazy infantile tantrums that Batman had, he was like, this is all some scheme the Joker's doing. And in reality, it was all some scheme the Joker and Jack were doing. So I, I guess the question to both of you guys is, would you recommend this and to who? Sure. I would re- recommend this to anybody who likes the character. I think that it's a really interesting recombinant exercise, as I said. Batman psychology is oddly absent from this 
which in some ways is refreshing. It's like with Tom Holland as Spider-Man, we never got the Uncle Ben dying scene, right? With which we got with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. With this, there is very little commentary about his parents dying. I think that Murphy just takes it as for as granted that everybody knows that for Batman, he's the only superhero whose origin story and motivation are identical, right? That's the thing that, that makes Batman so powerful and so inexhaustibly useful. So yeah, who would I recommend it to? If you like the character, and I think in some ways for people who don't necessarily know all the different versions of the character, the way that clearly the three of us do, that I think that for people who can't compare, like 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 sniffing different vintages of wine, Frank Miller and Grant Morrison, that they might get more out of this one than, than the people like us. Sniffing wine with Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Better than sniffing Clayface. Ryan, I... Yeah, On conditions what you recommend us because I I know you don't, but like it's, it's uh, an interesting concept, and if you're curious about the concept and see want to see how it plays out, then definitely check it out. If you want to see somebody else playing with your favorite Batman action figures, I'm taking your analogy, Roman, and running with it. Um, and all the Matchbox cars. Yeah, this is and the Matchbox cars, literally every Batmobile. Then yeah, it was it was literally a Hot Wheel set piece, the final yeah. thing to get to the island. <laughs> So yeah, so so I guess under those circumstances, I would recommend it. I think Sean Murphy had a really fascinating concept here. I think he could have probably thought it out a little bit more. Again, being prescriptive, but just really eliminating the Neo-Joker, he could have focused a lot more on stuff that was material that was way more interesting. And seeing what he could have done with Duke... Because it's a big introduction for that guy, for that character. And it really sets up Joker, Jack Napier, as being this councilman, putting him in a very interesting position of power over Batman. But that Mm. is, and also introducing the racial component. How do minority communities where Batman might have an inordinate amount of activity, how do they feel about this guy? Do they even know that Batman is a white guy, considering he's always showing up at in the dark i'm talking about a book that i wish he would have written rather than the book that he did write so i feel that's a little Mm. bit unfair at the same time reading it does feel like there were some missed opportunities here some very interesting narrative possibilities that he could have gone down and as an alternative he took the more conventional supervillain is threatening gotham path Mm. here's what i would say if if any of this conversation is intriguing to you but more importantly if you wind up picking this book up and the book itself has things that intrigue you, I would highly recommend jumping into the sequels to this because Sean Murphy just, I don't want to say he like dials it to 11, but he he absolutely goes a little more batshit crazy with his whole bat universe. And he, he starts having even more fun with the toys in, in subsequent volumes, which it, it's funny. After volume two, I was like, what is he going to do in volume three? Or I didn't, I think I thought we were done. And then he just keeps coming back for more with the sequels in this universe that he's he's really, really committed to. And it's obviously doing well because DC's giving him the money and the rope to, to run with. The extensibility of the story really is quite surprising. I, th- I thought at the end of the first one, oh, they're done. And then the second one, I thought, oh, they're done. And now in the third one, well, then they had the Harley Quinn, which is written by somebody else, but in the same universe. And now with Batman Beyond the White Knight, 
that one is just really fantastic. Uh, and again, that same exercise where they're just taking the characters out of joint, dislocating them and, and putting them into slightly new situations where you're haunted by the old one, but aware of the new one. So I, I agree. Unfortunately, it's just never fair to tell somebody, well, the series gets really good by episode <laughs> five. Yeah, you have to at least like it a little. I don't think Ryan's going to go read the rest of them. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not. The <laughs> I'll read the Wikipedia entries. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I actually have a great story, which is the reason that I knew about this at all was back in October. I was in New York for the first time since lockdown, and I was on the subway and this guy was sitting next to me reading comics. And I said, well, tell me, what are you reading? What do you like? And he gave this glowing review of White Knight and managed to tease enough of the details without spoiling anything that I think I actually like stopped whatever I was doing and ran over to Midtown, bought a copy and stuck it in my briefcase and, and got to read it on the plane ride home a few days later and just loved it which is, I think, a testament just to the power of word of mouth more than anything else. But but that, I was primed to really like it, and I did. Yeah, same. Same based on kind of the initial recommendation. So, Brad, thanks for joining. I think we can find some other weird shit to have you back one day. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Brad. Guys, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Ryan, are there any other questions that you'd like to ask? Yeah, Roman, I do have another question. Whatever are we going to be reading next week? And are you going to be reading it with us? <laughs> it depends if I don't sleep through our <laughs> recording slot. But clearly, Brad has been snooping at our spreadsheet because next week we are reading Genderqueer, which is 2021's most banned book in the United States. How to describe Genderqueer? Well, we could just replay what Brad said. Basically, back in 2014, Maya Kobabe, who uses the EM ear pronouns, wrote an autobiographical account of her own struggles and journey with gender identity. And it's one of those things, and this is one of the things I love about the medium, honestly, just many mediums, but comics does it well in a very accessible manner, helps you understand a space in the world that we don't have a lot of direct experience with. And it was a really powerful read, and a lot of people don't like this book. And I will point blank say it's okay to not like books, but it's a lot of people don't like it to the point that they don't think other people should read it. And if there's ever an invitation to read a book, that is one of them. This book, among a handful of others, and maybe we'll bring it back for a banned booktober, but there's this recent spate of people not thinking people should be reading things because it's new ideas that challenge our way of thinking. But I'm a sucker for things that drive greater empathy and understanding, and this book moved me the first time I read it, and it's worth a conversation. And hopefully joining us will be my Modern Minorities co-host, Sharon Lee Tony, as well. So next week, we will be revisiting the banned book Gender Queer by Maya Kababe. All right. I'm looking forward to it. I love reading a good banned book. Stick it to the man with comic books. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Jones.